There's a beautiful sunset on that building over there. I have to say. Is that where we're all? Is that where we're all looking? Look at the glorious, the glorious sunset on that building. Hey, Post Light Podcast listeners, it's Michael Shane. This week, we're bringing you another live edition of the show, recorded during a recent event at our office in New York City. Today's episode is the second installment in our series of panel discussions focused on doing more with less. Our head of design, Natalie Kurz, and some of New York's most interesting design leaders discuss what it means to think inside the box and how constraints can produce stronger work in the end. There are two more events left in the series, so be sure to stay tuned for discussions from our strategy and engineering groups. And if you're interested in attending an event, remotely or in person, go to postlight.com slash events and you can RSVP. Okay, enjoy today's show. Hello, everyone. Thank you all for coming. Really excited to have everyone here. Really excited to have our panel. And uh, we're just going to go ahead and kick this off. So I'm Natalie Kurz. I'm the head of product design here at Postlight. So we're just going to go down the line here and have our wonderful panel introduce themselves, the names, where you are, what you're doing. And then a little fun fact I wanted to ask everyone, like, what is the design hill that you're willing to die on? My name is Matthew Marco. I am Senior Director of Product Design at NASDAQ. The design hill I'm willing to die on is kind of design related. One, Oxford commas are important. I approve. I will die on that hill. And sort of related to that, specifically to design, is I feel like writing is the most underrated skill a designer can have. Hi, everybody. Jody Leo here. I'm the Chief Delivery Officer at Nava Public Benefit Corporation. And the design hill I am always willing to die on is human-centered. Said another way, you got to do your research. Hi, I'm Todd Hewlin. I'm the Senior Director of Product Design at Peacock, which is a part of NBC Universal. I guess Design Hill I'm going to die on is that, you know, what I say to my team is designers should be owners of the work and they should very much act like product owners until someone tells them not to. So do everything you can to influence the product. And that includes, you know, understanding the business, understanding partnerships and the, the language of those around you and to really advocate and push for greats, uh, UX and design in those contexts, in those worlds, in the language of the people around you where you can meet them. I suppose it's only fair if I share mine, and that is the phrase user testing. It makes my skin crawl. We don't test users. We test the product. So um, I think it was uh, Don Norman said, we only call drug users and people in front of the computer like users. <laughs> That's a good point, too. Wonderful. All right. Well, we're just going to go ahead and kick this off. As folks know, we are thinking inside the box this time. And what that means is we're going to be talking about how you can design in a world of constraints, um, specifically constraints that you really sometimes don't have any control over, right? And how that might change your thinking or might change your approach or ways to kind of address that and still be able to put forth the best design work and serve your users, users, uh, serve the people that are using your product, you know, as best you can. All right, so the first one is, I'm going to direct this one to Matthew first. So we're all used to dealing with like upfront limitations, things like aggressive timelines, for instance, limited resourcing. So what are some creative ways you've been able to navigate around those types of limitations up front? So I want to pick apart two phrases inside of the question. One is upfront limitations and common issues, right? And I think that we need to combine these two things and think of upfront limitations as just being normal, 
right? Like these are not issues that are daunting or insurmountable. They are a normal part of design. And I think that in terms of navigating it, there are two ways that I think about it. One is you navigate it in the way you design the product, right? You design the product with those limitations in mind about your timeline, about your scope, about your client or your team's willingness to maintain that product. And then there's process, right? So from a product perspective, I was a UX lead at an agency several years ago, and I worked on a website for a film distribution company. Super tight budget, super tight timeline. And that presented constraints in the amount of research we were able to do about our users, the amount of learning we were able to do about the product, the business, and all of the things that we needed to know. And what it ultimately came down to was, how much discovery can you do in a day? Like literally one day. And so I thought, well, how much can I do in one day? And what I started to realize is, having done enough work in my career, you can kind of pin this product back to certain archetypes. And inside of those archetypes, there are best practices and methods that work. And you can use those as a hypothesis for the rest of the product. And that becomes the sort of scaffolding around which you design the product. That scaffolding solved a lot from an IA perspective. Then inside of that IA, we started looking at where does traffic really go on this site? We looked at the structure and it is a finite site. It has a knowable amount of content, right? And I think that knowing that you're looking at a finite or infinite amount of content really dictates a lot in terms of what you're making. We knew it was finite. We knew where traffic was going. And that's where we focused our discovery. We did a lot of work leading up to it, looking at competitive sites, looking at analytics. This, we kind of jammed it all into a week and had one in-person session with these stakeholders and with just a few of their customers and came out of that with card sorting in the room. And we basically had the most important template on their site wireframe that day. We knew exactly what order everything was going to go in on that page. And I think that design is still up today. I worked on that site as a designer in 2014. So in 2022, it's still around. I'll, I'll take credit for that one. And then there's the process side, right? So you can make decisions in terms of what the product is, but you can also make decisions about how the process runs, right? For me, when you're looking at aggressive timelines, one of the most time-consuming things that happens in web design is making decisions by consensus, I think we're all kind of aware of this, I don't want to say pitfall, because I think it's important to get the right stakeholders in agreement about what it is that we're building. But I think that you have to distribute decision-making authority appropriately. You have to rely on some people, imbue them with some executive authority to get past some blocks in terms of consensus. And you have to define that really early in the project. And I think that Having a process that takes into account that executive decision-making uh, capacity and distributing it appropriately helps you get past some of the timeline limitations that are pretty common in web design. What would you say in, in let's say, a client services organization where you just don't have the control over that, right? Where they're like, no, we've got 10 equally important stakeholders that all must be listened to and accounted for and agree. How might you have uh, handled that? And this is open to any of the panelists if that's something you've dealt with. It is something that I can actually answer for. Um, and it's something that, from a design approval process at NASDAQ, it's something that we deal with. And one of the things that we do is we have two kinds of design presentations, and they're structured for the stakeholder groups that we have, right? There is one kind of large, 
here's the design, here is our approach as you know, a product design team. These are the decisions that we made in terms of content and features and how they work. Right? And I think that's a pretty common kind of design presentation that for all, those of us who are designers, we're all familiar with. Then there's a second design presentation, which is you, the stakeholder, get your 15 to 30 minute breakout where we address the very specific things that are of concern to you in this design. And this is all part of the feedback cycle. That initial kind of large group presentation is, this is when the open comment period begins, but in between the start of that open comment period and when the comments are due, we give that stakeholder group very focused attention for a brief period of time and they feel either heard or they feel like they have a chance to submit their opinions about their very niche thing. And the thing is, they know that every other of these 10 important stakeholders is also participating in the same way. And we as a design organization then get to take this feedback and we get to synthesize it. And we get to say, you know what? This particular revenue stakeholder's concern kind of outweighs this particular content stakeholder's concern about the same feature. And when we communicate the changes that we're making back, we present, you know, this is the feedback that we heard. This is the way that we're addressing it in the design of this specific feature. We heard you. We're going this way. That's wonderful. I love that. Any other thoughts? The only thing I would add to that is what stakeholder is not in the room. And I think the theme of everything I would want to share with you all today is to try to operate with as much foresight as possible and, you know, be anticipating what's around the corner, which I know probably every single one of you is doing at all, at all points. So the stakeholder who's not in the room could be the one who is responsible for your authority to operate, to use some terminology from this, the public sector where, where I'm focused. And if your authority to operate is not in place or is compromised at the end of your project, that deadline you've been crunching for for all this time, it's gone. You don't have the authority to operate. So that's the only thing I would add to your deep assessment of making sure we're talking to stakeholders. I think there's... There's a phrase that I, even though I despise Donald Rumsfeld, his unknown unknowns, I think is germane because in invading Iraq, there were a lot of unknown unknowns. And so I do think there's a bit of a thread too, I think in building up a body of knowledge in the, not only the domain you're in, but also I think lateral spaces and understanding and anticipating so that when things do happen, you can be as confident and as prepared as you can be for these curveballs and things that come up from either unknown stakeholders or multiple stakeholders who have competing, say, needs and requirements. And speaking in a way that's human-centric, that's informed by your own research that hopefully you've spun up as much as you can to do discovery and understanding of those spaces. And if they're not exactly germane, sort of these lateral spaces or prior knowledge, it really is being prepared. There's a, there's a sense of, you know, the readiness is all, is a sense of it. And that comes to you with time. That's like a long journey, I think, of being a product person and a product designer is like over the years you build that knowledge and you, you can begin to really intuit and understand some of these challenges and spaces to act quickly in order to like address, say, things that come out of nowhere. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you for teeing up my next question, which is about the unknown constraints. So what are some recommended strategies to uncover those big gotchas kind of early in the project, whether it's you are working on a project and the client said, oh yeah, we have a fully fleshed out design system. And then you get in there and there's no such thing, right? Or, you know, we have access to this API that doesn't actually then end up existing. What are some uh, techniques that you might've used to help uncover those early and then maybe make those quick pivots that you may need to in terms of the approach that you're taking to 
solve those problems? I mean, I think as much as quickly as possible, it's funny, Matthew, you mentioned like if you have a week to do discovery, I do think like building up a body of knowledge about your user base and your target audience is as quickly as possible to begin to stand that up, to have like primary research, to have participatory research so that when things do arise, you have this grounding of a sense of the space you're in and the kind of optionality of it. And you're able to speak with confidence in ways that are informed by data, which it may be qualitative. It may be, again, you know, sort of like primary foundational research, but that's all meaningful data. And you definitely have to take folks along on a journey who may not necessarily have that grounding. That's a big challenge, definitely, is like if you're in cultures or places where the leadership isn't necessarily used to talking this kind of language, you have to, you have to be able to meet them where they're at, you know, understand their language and their world, the way they're working, their sort of constraints, and meet folks where they're at within the business, within product, within engineering, always be understanding those target audiences. It's very much writing too. I love that you mentioned writing. <laughs> like it's absolutely, UX is a lot of it's just is words on a screen. And so a lot of it's about know your audience. I agree with all of that. And I think one of the things I would say that we are all going to experience those unexpected changes. What I would say, again, to operate with foresight and be ready to mobilize and focus a few people on the, that issue, most likely the leads, and then let the other, let the rest of the team keep going, because the, you know, delivery is the strategy. Delivering for your clients, for your customers, for you know, client services, getting those quick wins, making sure they see you that you're you're continuing to move and not getting completely pulled off track. That's an essential component to continuing to see, succeed as a product team when you get those inevitable curveballs. So almost like a divide and conquer type of mentality. Yes, exactly. And, you know, the, the ATO, the authority to operate, is something that, like I said, we encounter a lot. And I'm sure people in financial services, it's like you think you're moving quickly and then you hear from a, an unanticipated stakeholder. We need to QA that for several months because we can't, let that slip. We can't let a user's balance be somehow wrong when they log into the site. And so, I mean, most financial services teams know that. I'm just kind of picking on that as an example, having lived in that space. But, you know, you can anticipate that there could be someone from legal and compliance who's going to want to have a say as to what you're going to be delivering and shipping. Get them in the room fast. I know a lot of people say that. But on the ground, the reality is they want to keep designers away from legal and compliance because they're expensive. But it's more expensive not to get them involved early, as we've all seen, right? I see heads nodding. So mobilize and always be thoughtful about what's the thing I'm not thinking about and, and how can I involve those people or, or do some sleuthing to, to figure out what could be a blocker for me when I'm trying to ship and, and hit a deadline. I think that... Todd, you mentioned something about you know knowing your customer base, knowing kind of adjacent industries, um, and I think that that's helpful for establishing trust among your project team and your clients. That you know you're not just leaning back on some paint by numbers process; that you're really involved and invested in what it is that you're building and designing. And I think that when those unexpected things happen, that when you establish that trust, you have more leverage. And I think that, you know, the way, Jody, that you're approaching it in terms of, you know, kind of divide and conquer, where there are certain leads who, you know, tackle one thing and there are certain sort of delivery folks who 
maybe work you know on production on another side i think is is a great insight you also mentioned legal and compliance and i think you know to the point about knowing the business that you're in right if you're working on financial services if you're working on pharma you know that regulatory stuff is going to happen. It needs to be a part of it early. And if somebody's telling you that it shouldn't be, you got to call them out, right? And I think that that knowledge comes from having, you know, curiosity about the work that you're doing. It even happens in a streaming platform. We have to deal with legal and compliance. (laughs) Yeah, rights and everything else. I'm sure that that is a, a big part of it. Find me a team that doesn't have to deal with that, you know. Very, very fair. What about in terms of these unknown constraints? Do you have any any strategies or, or stories around how can you unveil those kind of as early as possible? Because because certainly the, the later those things hit you in the project, the, the more impactful they can be. So what are some ways that maybe you help tease out those kind of unknown unknowns as early as possible? I ask, uh, sorry to jump in, I ask, who is the person who could pull the plug on this last minute? That's a great uh, way to ingratiate yourself to a product owner. Say, you know, it kind of gets them talking about their history within their organization. So that's like uh, one of my favorite questions. Who could pull the plug last minute? There's also an aspect of doing product design that's almost like corporate psychology and therapy. We were like, what's going on here? <laughs> Poking around, investigating. It's uh, there's a little bit of like forensics in there too. You know where bodies are buried and why. I would say as much as possible, being able to wear those hats and like really be curious. Like to me, it's fascinating. Like I find these sort of corporate cultures and the way businesses are run really interesting for all their you know pros and cons and their beauties and their strangeness. And so I think being inquisitive helps. And then. I hate using the word empathy because it's so throw, it's banded around so much. But this idea of very much, you know, walking in someone's shoes and like really kind of knowing like, oh, of course they would do this because of all these other things that are happening. And so it just can help to contextualize, I think, introducing either, you know, design-led thinking that they may be like, why are you doing this? And what's the point to understand where they're at and where they're coming from to be able to meet people where they're, where they're at. It really is like that kind of, you know, your audience and knowing who they are. Another thing I think is important is trust capital. I think building that with folks as quickly as possible as well, like, you know, around the, in the organization you're in and the partners you're working with, finding ways to relate to them and know what they're going through. And it's really hard and remote, I think, particularly. It's really challenging. But all those little ways to, again, understand the folks' domains and what they're doing and why and what they might be up against and working with them for the things they may need and again, it may be something you don't necessarily want to do or it's a little frustrating, but building that trust capital, I think, is another way when wrenches or things that a left field hit you, you can rely upon other partners and other folks you're working with to help you to really navigate treacherous waters. I mean, that takes time. It's not, you know, it's not something you can do off the bat. Like, it's not like a quick journey. It's a, you know, it takes some patience. can also erode like a six months worth of trust can erode in a moment's time if something goes terribly wrong. Thinking about that empathy toward, toward your stakeholders, I think an interesting tactic that I've used is asking them, like, what does success look like to your boss? Like, what can I do that's going to help get you promoted with this project, right? So that you can align with the things that are really, it very quickly, I think, can sometimes get you to the what's really important to them, right, in terms of what success means. 
you know, using our own processes for our clients and avoiding an us versus them mentality. It can be hard, I admit it. (laughs) But, um, you know, even sometimes internally, we go through struggles where you're scaling an organization, for example, and some of the teams aren't collaborating well and just pausing and saying, okay, you know, if I had a user in front of me, that's a gift. Let's really take the time to understand what's going on here. And if what, how what we are doing could be more useful to, to this audience. And like Todd was saying, really putting yourself in their shoes and saying, well, when I say legal and compliance, I'm not vilifying them. I'm considering them really valuable stakeholders who, and collaborators who I've been able to work with really effectively to move mountains when we need to move mountains very quickly. When you talk about who can pull the plug on something last minute, it's them. A lot of times, right, is, is we can't do that. It's illegal. It's a pretty hard statement that you really can't get around. So, so knowing what those things are early on, I think, can erase a lot of that headache. So that's a really good thing. I don't think as designers we maybe think about that enough of, of what are the, the legal or compliance or, or other kind of immovable, you know, thinking about the box. What are the immovable walls of this box? So maybe that's a way of thinking about constraint is finding that out early, right? Is it we have this deadline because our company is going public on that day. And like, we're not moving that deadline, right? So understanding what are those immovable walls? Sometimes it's compliance, sometimes it's external, sometimes it's internal factors. But I think that's another way of maybe kind of wrapping your head around some of those constraints. Yeah, and for in the public sector, for, for Nava's teams, we often have regulatory deadlines and you just can't miss those. <laughs> the voters have spoken. So yeah, there there's so many interesting and, and these are some of the things you can do to operate with foresight in the business you're in. What are some of those, like you were saying, immovable boundaries and and how do we anticipate some of the uh, challenges we might face as a result of them? Even how those impact your timeline, right? So, okay, compliance needs six weeks to sit and look over your thing. So you have to work backwards to make sure that you've given yourself enough time, right? So even understanding, like you said, there's certain deadlines that you can't, you can't falter. So, yeah, absolutely. One of the most stressful things, I think, in, in what we do is kind of when that last minute wrench is thrown in the work that you're doing and and you have to respond very quickly. So sometimes it's a new surprise stakeholder, right? So you've got the infamous like swoop and poop. We've never seen this person before and they're here and they're exerting all of their, you know, considerable power over our decisions. Or you find out halfway through like the thing we were really excited about isn't technically feasible anymore, right? So what are we going to do about that? So what are some ways that you've found that are are useful for kind of quickly course correcting that or, or kind of working around those types of things? I would say go deep quickly, like really go deep quickly to find, and not the whole team again, keep a large portion of the team focused on delivering the work that you've committed to as much as possible, but like really try to get deep on the issue and use some of that trust capital you've earned to say, hey, dear client, I'm not going to stand here and pretend this isn't throwing me off. Let's work together and roll up our sleeves and try to really get to the bottom of it. If it's a feature that's not feasible, maybe it could be feasible later. If it's, you know, this isn't legal, you know, you can try to dive into, I'll, I'll give you an example from my financial services background. And I will also be a little self-effacing and say this is at a time in my career when I was, you know, maybe a little overconfident in certain ways. But when Hurricane Katrina hit, I was working in financial services and, you know, 401k hardship withdrawals are a thing. Stay with me. It's, it's a little techie, but I'm sure you know. And it took eight weeks to process a hardship withdrawal. 
And these people were in desperate need. And so my team and I heard, we can't change those guidelines. We have to keep those hardship withdrawals. And we worked really hard. We went deep into the business domain and understood that there was no SEC rule preventing a self-certification of hardship withdrawals. So we were able to pilot that quickly and get these services, or, you know, open up uh, self-certification for us, the uh, sunny day use cases. And then now that's a thing that we all have available to us. So I basically said to legal and compliance, where is the SEC rule pointing to this being a necessity? And nobody could point to that. So we, we pushed and were able to get that pilot going. It was almost like an assumed constraint that didn't actually exist. Yes. And I would say approach that with a lot of diplomacy and not not with an attitude, but just, you know, like exactly. Yeah. I think there's a lot of like relationship building, you know, that happens in order to find the right people to help you unblock or do what you want to do. And sometimes it can be a little skirting around things or scouting out ways to work with the people you know who may have a a source of power or a source of information that can, again, help you really navigate around things very quickly. When I was at Chase, we were working on an international wire transfer product, and we we had to continually cut scope because of, you know, time and constraints and things. And so there were a number of things that were, like, dropping below a bar of quality for us where I had to, like, build relationships over time. It's actually I'd been building them with dev leads and architects and others who could help me understand how to like kind of get around what we were being told as an official line in order to ship like a quality product that we had envisioned. And we were able to pull it off and it was a little bit like kind of skunk works, a little like below the radar, but it wasn't, it wasn't tripping across compliance or anything legal, you know, bounds, but it was definitely informed though by being a little bit clever with relationships and folks that you've built a trust with where you can then work with them to be like, how can we make this happen? <laughs> Let's just like, this is what's best for the consumer and our customers. How can we figure this out? And it's tricky and it's hard. It doesn't always, it doesn't always work either. It's not always perfect. <laughs> I think that there's this theme that's been coming up in, I think, all of our answers about the importance of developing social connections with your clients and among your team and building trust. And that can make these kinds of unexpected constraints be a little less uncomfortable. I think that sort of related to that, I wanted to say you should always take into account that you're not the only one who just got the wrench thrown at them. And so be kind to everybody around you in that situation. You know, try to keep a level head about the nature of the constraint that's just been leveled. And then the other thing is, is that you can build it into your process ahead. You can think about there's a sort of, you know, happy path process of design and development and stakeholder approval and so on. But you can have levers that you can pull when emergencies happen, right? I think that in legislative decision-making, right, we generally operate by consensus, but there are things like war powers or emergency authority that allow an executive to operate kind of outside of those boundaries. What if you did that in the process of building a product? And you say, okay, X constraint has arrived at this point in the project. Something needs to give in order for you to hit the deadline, And what if the thing that is taking the most time is this sort of consensus building? And by building that into the process from the beginning, you give yourself a little bit of room for that inevitability of the unexpected constraint. But I think there's a real truth here we're talking about of like kind of battle scarred experience (laughs) that you can't unfortunately 
can't rush to, it's going to take time. And so there's a sort of a wash, rinse, repeat to like going through these situations and navigating them again and navigating them again. And I think there's a kind of Zen to this um, process that you slowly kind of elevate into a space where you can anticipate and understand. And that only comes with time. It really does. I mentioned earlier the the infamous soup and poop of of you know the the stakeholder you've never seen before. How have you all dealt with that? Because I think that's probably something we've all dealt with at least once, if not dozens of times in our career. Any uh, advice on how to handle that very specific type of constraint? I think for me, at a certain point, I've come to notice patterns of when the unexpected stakeholder is about to happen. A spidey sense? You're like, oh, wait a minute. You can tell it's in coming. people in like a stakeholder's decision making where they're like hedging. And you know that they're waiting on somebody else to decide something for them. Everyone just kind of gets squirrely. A little bit squirrely, but also non-committal. And they're saying, I need to think about it. If you've been around enough projects, you know you know what this feeling is like. And you get that sense, oh, there's, a, there's another stakeholder who's about to enter the room. I think we're familiar with racy charts. I think that not just establishing one, but treating it as a living document that's essential to the ongoing uh, success of the project is something that helps you sort of account for something like that so that when unexpected stakeholder does appear, you have a place to put them and you have a place to say, okay, if this person just needs to be informed, let's just inform them and we'll keep going with the project. If this person is somehow now responsible for something, then we need to have some conversations about timeline, scope and budget, et cetera. Yeah. something actually that I was thinking of that's a bit of a build on what Jody, you were saying is I think with, you know, with your team to the best you can shield folks from like, like what? Oh my God, we just don't work. Like, and so at the very best to be able to um, mitigate, you know, what's happening in those moments. And if, if you have those folks who can help you, who you know can let it, you know, roll like a water off a duck's back. Some some people can, and like knowing those team members who can help you to quickly pivot, and others to kind of shield from the frustrations of it and the, the angst of it is another thing to understand as well. Is like with the team and the folks that you have ways to respond to those comments meaningfully, you know, substantially, but also keep your team, you know, morale and sense of purpose, you know, still, um, you know, true. That's a really good point is something like that can really demoralize a team or make it feel like, okay, now we're never going to get there. This is impossible. So there definitely is, you know, kind of that psychological piece of, of keeping your team moving forward, keeping them together, whether that's you guys all gripe, what just happened and then move on or, you know, whatever, whatever tactic might work. But that's a really good point. And often things I think, you know, maybe there is a swoop and poop situation where you have to pivot your designs. There's, there's a sense of like meaning and value, even if things were designed to a point and need to change, there's still a backstory to that and there's still value to it. I think it's important to signify that even if there can be drastic moments of changing things and changing course, that the appreciation and value of the design work that came before that is signaled and is integral to the work ahead. So just, yeah, and the, these, happen, these things happen too. I've been really appreciating the panelists talking about keeping the work humane and trying to make sure that the teams can keep moving. I think that really is part of the role of you know leadership and, and upcoming leads who want to shadow when we're dealing with these constraints. And you know, for the, the context that I'm operating in in the public sector, Often the swoop and poop is coming from not just an individual, but 
changing re- regulations or, or an administration change. an administration change exactly and so really understanding the policy and even putting people you know who might in other contexts be in a business analyst role being a liaison between the policy and regulations team and the sprint teams you know so in addition to like the spidey senses which is such a great thing you know when you hear i got to raise this up the flagpole that there are other decision makers but you know just making sure you have really strong connection points between a team like a regulatory team and a sprint team to um, limit the flow of updates that is going to demoralize the team and throw the team off too many times for them to keep standing. I think it's about finding those allies and advocates on the client side, right? And, and kind of as far and as many as you can, right? It may not be like your primary stakeholder. It may be someone else. And, and that is coming back to like establishing those relationships, right? And then people might be thinking, well, how do you really do that? You know, I do think there are some patterns that we could observe there. Do you have any examples? Yeah, I mean, I think I said before, and you probably all have seen this, is start delivering quickly. You know, develop a shared vision. Like, you can't skip that step. But once you've developed that shared vision, start to show that you can deliver on the the client's or the customer's goals. And then from there, it's really about active listening. I heard you. I'm showing you what I've done. Work across teams if you can. Like in, in our world, there we're often mixed with multiple vendors. Be badgeless. Like it's about really strong delivery. So don't make it about, you know, putting yourself in a prime position. Make your client position your client to take the win. Like all of those things that we would want to do for our users, you could often apply to in the client context. In, in a sense, they are users. They're users of your service, right? They may not be end user of your product, but but a lot of those things, as you're saying, you know, empathy and, and other types of things really do apply. I wanted to talk a little bit about something that we do at NASDAQ from a process side in design. And this is something that only happened very recently. And that is, I think that we all know that different designers have different sort of areas of focus, right? I think that we're at a point in this profession where generalists are getting harder and harder to find, and there are people who have various strengths. And one of the things that we did in our process is we decided to break up design into two different parts. One is that sort of stakeholder review. And that is you put down the initial wireframes and comps and you're you know, shopping them around to your various business stakeholders and you're telling them this is the thing that we're going to build and we're soliciting your feedback about it. Then there is development preparation. And what development preparation is, is a separate process by which you take the designs and you get them ready to be built, right? And you are relying on more of a systems thinking approach there in terms of how you break down the design that has been signed off to the thing that will be shipped. But it is in development preparation where you give yourself a lot of leeway to actually operate and account for things like unexpected stakeholders, unexpected constraints, right? As you're getting closer to shipping, right, you're able to continue building, but you basically have a designer who's embedded with your dev team, who is imbued with that authority to make design decisions closer and closer to when something ships. That's really interesting, that, that Matthew. That's um, one of the things we do at Nava with like a, a broad spectrum of client stakeholders when we're you know, kicking off work is a, a process called service blueprinting, which I'm sure many people here have heard of. But it's often one of the most interesting times, which I think probably ties to that first team you were mentioning where you're you're looking across you know an enterprise a, a state 
agency or a federal agency and saying, we want to you know, have an improved service. Where does the service start and how does it get through to completion today? And then where is it bottlenecking the worst and how can we address that most quickly? And by doing that first, you really start to develop a prioritized roadmap and and get all of the stakeholders in the room, get to know them, see your working style, lead them through the process. And we have a we have some pretty detailed blog posts on our website on navapbc.com that talk about how we do service blueprinting at a high level so people can really just get started with it, even if they're employees at some of these agencies who don't have a design background, an approach that you're talking about to to really get downloads from stakeholders and understand the processes is so important. All right. Well, let's go ahead and move on. We've got one more question. So what's the best way that you found to achieve success while dealing with several constraints at once? So this is when you're juggling multiple things, let's say, you know, really hard deadlines that maybe keep getting more aggressive, right? Or in addition to that, now you've got a surprise stakeholder that comes in at the end. So I'd love to hear about how you might have been able to deal with that in the past. I mean, I think having clarity about priorities can help. And that's something that's really challenging and difficult when everyone's going to say that their work is number one, right? Everything is like a blocker, number one for those folks. So it's definitely getting discussions going about understanding a kind of a rank order as much as possible. So you can see what sort of may in the world of triaging get like, you know, <laughs> left behind maybe. It's not easy. And it definitely requires, again, a, a thread that's been going through this about relationship building and understanding at a certain level of authority where you can see that rank ordering and there may be folks or initiatives that do have to slip or get pushed out. Hopefully it's not the end of the world, but there are times when all the trains are in the station and you just got to say it's stopped to one of them. It's hard. Yeah. It's not an easy one. And again, building trust capital and relationships over time can help for that. But I think sometimes Sometimes a train's going to crash. It's so, uh, yeah, I'm curious, you know, both of you, your, your sense of that as well is like when those sorts of like un- immovable objects come together, other ways to deal with it. I think it's a mindset thing because that's what we do all day, every day, right? We deal with multiple very thorny constraints. You know, there's a mentality to, you know, we have to be in it for the long haul. And that can sound hard to get your head around when you've had a rough day, but these iterative processes we have going on, these digital services, like they've been iterated dozens and dozens of times. They've been optimized. And the longer you kind of stick with it and, and wait for those features that you're really excited about to get launched, it will happen. So bring an optimism, bring an, a mentality that, you know, you're doing great work and you might have lost that that feature set you were really hoping for this time, but it'll come back, especially if you have a vetted backlog based on user needs. Like those priorities often rise to the top. I think that having sort of a strong faith in one's vision is something that's essential when all of the constraints that are part of our job continue to arrive in waves. That faith can come from a number of sources, whether that's the research that you've done whether that's a particular belief in the way that your product is going to serve its customers. I think the other thing that we have to keep in mind is taking some perspective and realizing that design is a lot slower than we really think it is. I think that you know all of us who are working in technology have been inured to the way that time moves in most industries. Sometimes change takes months or years to happen. 
right? And you're dealing with much more rigid regulation in other industries. And I don't think we do that in product design much at all. Like, and, and there's this expectation of really instant gratification that the feature that I have designed will be online in a few weeks and it'll be out there in the world and making people's lives better. And it just doesn't move that fast. And I think that that perspective really comes with experience in your career, realizing that, you know what? Yeah, you have this backlog and that backlog is there and you're going to continue working on it. But it's not going to happen today. And having that perspective, I think, is something that has been really helpful for me. I just wanted to say that one of the things I learn on a daily basis from the people I work with is, you know, we can slow down to Matthew's point. We don't have to rush at everything. And, you know, the internet and delivering services on the internet has been happening long enough that we're multiple generations in. And I think people are entering the workforce or you know, demanding something different. So a combination of the thinking and long-term and also keeping the work humane, I'm very excited to see where that takes us. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to open it up to the uh, wonderful audience here and see if anyone has any specific questions. Well, if you don't have any questions, I would love to pass my mic to someone who is dealing with constraints right now that they want to share. Yeah, that's a great, great topic as well. Yeah, go ahead. Hello. Hi. You, you kind of touched on having a separate process for an additional process for design, getting design ready for development. And I feel like that's an interesting topic, which is just what about people that are not, that don't fit in the box, right? Like people that are, might be an engineer, but are in design and vice versa. Have you seen that work in an organization? This is a process that we came up with because it worked for our team and the specializations that we had. One of the things that I believe is that the process will not save you. I don't think that there is any one-size-fits-all process for every organization, right? And I think that if you look at the you know, team members that you have and you understand what their various specializations are and you realize, you know what, maybe there isn't anybody who fits into this particular mold to do that part of this process well, then this process might not work for you and that's okay. But I think that Inside of this decision to break out our design process into these two steps was the need to solicit business stakeholder feedback separately from the process of, you know, having a finite product to ship, right? I think that we had a process that works for us because of the team members that we have, but I think that having that second part of the process is what allows us to have a release valve to sort of dial down some features to make some executive decisions about what things ultimately do make it to an MVP of something. You might decide that based on the team that you have, that that second part of the process looks different, or you kind of more front load with more research, right? And that's, that's not a specialty that my team has really developed right now, right? So... The thing that I want you to take away from you know, what we did is there are ways that you can break up the design process from what you might have seen in other kind of in-house or agency places to have something that gives you flexibility to operate when business constraints arise. Great. Any other questions, thoughts? Yeah. Hey, y'all. I'm Rin. I'm from Postlight. <laughs> Question for the panel in terms of, I think, just constraints around the people and the clients, around language and jargon, of how do you balance like conversations with clients who might not be as product or tech savvy? Like if you're trying to run a design sprint with people who don't even know how to open up a downloads folder 
or if you're speaking two different languages because, hey, it's like a public sector gov run with, you know, trying to, you know, talk about features of like there are two different languages happening at two different paces and times, educational backgrounds. What are kind of like your earmarked situations or, you know, kind of golden nuggets of how to unite teams around a core language that you continue with the process successfully? That's a great question. It actually harkens back to Matthew mentioning being a writer. I think of it as like sort of role-playing and knowing your audience in a way. And again, it's one of the things that comes, you know, with exploration and time and putting yourself in someone else's shoes to know, uh, to know their language, their dialogue, and their limitations is a way to then de-jargonize or simplify or communicate across boundaries. And it's also, a, there's like a trial and error to it as well. You know, it's like a coming up with a model and then try, testing it out and validating it and adjusting and seeing what works and being open to feedback. You know, people may be like, wow, that just totally didn't work. You know, like that was the wrong approach. You're like, okay. Actually, it's interesting for me, like whenever you do things like in user research and other ways and you get really strong signals that it was totally wrong is actually amazing because it shows you an, a boundary, an outer boundary of like styles, approaches, communications that just are not, <laughs> you know, germane to the world you're in. And so I think there's a kind of a humble approach of, Get empathizing, but like really, you know, role playing and understanding and then testing out and validating approaches. I've definitely worked in places where I'm working with folks who have no sense of design thinking, design sprints, drawing. We were talking about drawing earlier, like, like these people haven't drawn in like 40 years and you're trying to convince them that it's fine to draw stick figures. And there's a kind of fun to it in some ways where you're like experiencing the like, trying to push boundaries and get people out of their comfort zone. I just say to have an open spirit to like understanding and then continually iterating on what you learn and find. And so it's a journey. It takes time. Thank you for the question, Ren. Totally agree with, with what Todd was saying. And I'll also say that when I'm finding my blood pressure rising in that moment where I'm like, really a downloads folder? I'm, I, connect to the fact that this person is a subject matter expertise in some area. They're in this room with me for a reason. And I bet you they could throw serious acronym soup at me and I wouldn't even know how to begin eating it. So um, I try to put that empathy hat on and also to speak their language and without being pedantic, understand that I'm in a teaching role and I'm trying to accelerate this person to deliver this work, this valuable work with me. So how do I accelerate them there and unravel the jargon? So I'm not saying a sprint, but I'm saying we're going to work together for two weeks at a time and we're going to, we're going to move fast and I'm excited to work with you. So I was talking to a colleague that a lot of our language comes from the military uh, in, in our world. Ship, deploy, authority to operate, all of these things. It's like, and that harkens back to, I think um, the fact that a lot of the software development processes that Microsoft took on were based on building rocket ships. And so there's just all this like amazing backstory to the nomenclature of our field throughout the years. And so, you know, maybe we want to start decommissioning and, and saying other, and thinking of other ways to say it. The creative people we are, we can we can get there pretty fast. I don't know if that was a helpful nugget, but okay, thank you. Yeah. Sort of reminds me of one of the questions that we ask at the beginning of a usability test about just like asking 
How often are you on the computer? What kind of phone do you have? Right. And part of that is baseline setting. So, you know, you don't just, you know, share a design with somebody or a product with somebody and expect that we're all operating at the same baseline. Right. I think that also having some self-awareness about the words that are in your vocabulary that are design jargon. Right. And knowing what is the layman's term of sprint, like what Jody was saying, right. We're going to work together for two weeks and it's going to be fast and exciting. But, um, you know, I was telling, I was also talking a little bit earlier about, you know, you have the 10 groups of stakeholders and, you know, you do the, like the real estate tour for the sort of general audience, but when you're dealing directly with one stakeholder or that pair of stakeholders, you have this opportunity to be very direct with them in their language. And so in those situations, I think of it as an opportunity to get feedback that you're not going to get in a general setting. I also think you can think of it as a two-way street, right? You're there to learn about their business. And part of our job is to also teach them a little bit about our business and how we're going to work together and and how this process is going to go and setting their expectations for, you know, when you see a wireframe, this is don't, you know, think that it's going to be this full colored thing that we can deploy, right? So helping them understand our jargon as well, I think can can help bridge that that gap. That totally made me think of one of my favorite essays, which I I can't resist sharing this with folks. (laughs) It's, um, it's speaking of language and the use of language to clearly communicate, in particular in English, it's George Orwell's Politics in the English Language, which is a fantastic short essay on meaningful communication in English. And what it boils down to, he has some rules in there, but it's all about speaking clearly and plainly in a way that people can understand that isn't fraught with like manipulation and jargon and obscurity and pedantic motivation it's all about ways to communicate very clearly and cleanly to people. It's, it's a great inspiration that I constantly live by, actually, and the ways that I communicate with folks. We, we have a number of teams that we deal with that are in Portugal, and so they all speak um, English as a second language. I'm constantly I'm reminding myself in terms of English communication not to slip into jargon, not to use like giant you know, words. And it's just a great, it's in general, it's a great mindset to be in terms of very simple, clear communication Spoiler alert on the store on the the essay is that Orwell talks a lot about how the shortest and smallest words in English, those are pure Anglo-Saxon words that have the most clarity. And a lot of these other words that are concatenations of Greek and, and Latin, they were jammed in like, you know, over time. And so those simple, small, you know, language and words that you can use are the most direct. And you can't hide behind them. You can't like, you know obfuscate or like manipulate because they're very direct and clear. I think there's something to that too about in terms of communication is like utilizing very clean, simple um, language to, to communicate your intent. I think that's really important, that precision of language. If you think about it as designers, that's something we do with our, as we're designing a product, right? If it's like, if you're asking someone for their email, don't ask them for their username, right? Just say you're asking them for your email address, right? And I think you can kind of apply a similar philosophy with your clients. I know sometimes it may be tempting to like, you want to sound smart or you want to sound like the expert, but I think it's okay to, to even ask, like, I'm not exactly sure what you mean. Can you expand upon that, right? With your client or, you know, you have way more knowledge about this than I do back up a second. Let's, let's, you know, take another stab at that. So I think that's always okay too, to, to gain that clarity. All right, great. Any other question? All right. We got one in the back. Oh, we got one in the front, one in the back. We got time for one more. Did you want to? So we've been talking a lot about, you know, how to work within constraints that are sort of like thrown upon you. I'm curious if uh, you all have any thoughts on having a constraint that you personally believe in that you want to impose on a project, but other people don't agree with. I'm talking specifically about 
accessibility or inclusivity. No, we want, we're targeting growth, we're targeting profit, we're targeting exploitation above all else. <laughs> How can you buck against that by advocating for a constraint that is the right thing to do? I mean, do you want people to use it? That's, I know that was a little flip, but we're frequently in this place, right, where we have to advocate for table stakes, things like accessibility and, you know, level double A, please, while we're at it. So, you know, I think when people are in an aggressive growth hacker mindset, they're willing to cut corners to test, test products to see if, if anyone will actually use it. But I think we can encourage them that if we're, if you're, willing to just aggressively exclude so many people like what the heck are we even building here i do think there are ways too, like with accessibility where you can it's easy to float and they're like very real life impact to cutting out these essential aspects of the design like with accessibility you can be like oh look at all these lawsuits that happened like, yeah. like you can real, tie it back to dollars and real then world listen. motivation of like and and diversity and inclusion you know like pointing to other successes as models, as ways to show like the potential, you know, for if people are so driven by bottom line, turn it into like risk and then also bottom line growth. So it's, it's one of those ways of like understanding and operating the space you're in and turning it into a meaningful language and communication that can leverage power in those ways. And so it could take time to figure those out, but then it's kind of like hack the system in the best ways you can. I think you can also just build it into your process. Right, just make accessibility part of everyday language and and part of the design that you're just doing naturally, right? And and make sure the engineers have a, a solid understanding of how to implement what you're doing in a way that's accessible, and so it doesn't become a separate conversation around constraints. It's just part of what we do. One of the upsides of separating that process is that you can sneak things in <laughs> that align with the moral compass that you have without anybody noticing. I don't recommend this for everybody, but it's something that is actually a useful tool about the process, right? If there is a stakeholder who is particularly concerned about the pixel size of this particular button, right? And you know that that is not going to be a large enough tab target for, you know, certain kinds of, of users, let it pass in design and tackle it in dev, right? Write your acceptance criteria because that stakeholder is not going to write it. Write your acceptance criteria with that in mind. They probably won't read it either. Exactly. So. <laughs> so, you know, like, there are things that you can do as a designer that are, like, you know, yes, you have a responsibility to your stakeholders, but you also have a responsibility to your users, and you can take that authority that you have and, you know, apply it closer to when the product is being made. And I think that, you know, to the point of building accessibility into the process, right, making sure that it's spelled out in your business requirements, making sure that every presentation that you have to your stakeholders has this language about it consistently it's not a silver bullet right like you you're not going to get uh, developers who are you know testing for that or qa engineers who are testing for that right away but the more you use that word the more it starts to seep in that it is important the more that it'll start to seep in at higher business levels that it is important and that's something that you need to continue to do in order to get that traction and that culture to change. I think we just invented a whole, you know, subgenre of design, sneaky ethical design. <laughs> I think this should become a specialty for us all. All right, I'm looking at the time. We are running a little bit over, but I just wanted to give a very, very big thank you to our panel here. Thank you so much for coming and spending time with us. Thank you. Thank you.
And thank you. Thank you to all of you for coming and joining in this conversation, bringing your thoughtful questions. And uh, yeah, really happy to see everyone. So thanks so much. Cheers. Thank you, thank Natalie. You.